0: This is the What Now Podcast.
1: The thoughts always come first. And the, and the problem we usually have is we're not aware of those thoughts. And so that process is just super fast. We need to slow that down and kind of put a little pit stop there at the thoughts and say, no, wait a minute. Is this thought accurate? Is this thought true? And if it is, then yes, proceed to the emotion. If it's untrue, then let's try to manage that thought change it to something more correct, and then proceed to the the resulting emotion from that.
0: This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss the culture and beliefs in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an honest and faithful way, in an effort to encourage, uplift, and inspire. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Dr. David Morgan as he shares strategies for managing relationships, as well as sharing advice on avoiding negative thought patterns, avoiding the tendency to control, reducing frustration with marital partners and breaking down emotional walls and more. This is an episode you will not want to miss. Today, I'm here with LDS psychologist, Dr. David Morgan. Welcome. Hi, Mary Alice.
1: Great to be back.
0: Well, I've had you on here a couple of times, and I am so honored that you're willing to come back and share some more of your wisdom with us.
1: Well, I'm I'm pleased to be back and honored to be here with you as well. You're doing such a great work with your podcast, and, and hopefully today's discussion can be helpful to a lot of people as well.
0: I think it will. I mean, today we're going to be focusing on managing relationships, um, uh, emotional triggers. Mental health is on the rise, as you know, and um, this is a really important topic that we're going to be discussing today. So I'd love to just kind of jump right in and and pick your brain on some of these things and, and understand, you know, many times we can go into this auto-response when we're around certain kinds of people. Who have been in our life who have had a negative impact on us. And we revert back to certain heightened emotions and feelings, and we can feel triggered. So how can we manage that?
1: You know, it's interesting because when um, when I was thinking about that, I actually I, I, I want to start with an experience that I had uh, many years ago when I was, um, this was in my pre-doctoral internship. So I had been uh, in college for nine years at that point the last thing I had to do was to do a a full year internship and uh, I was in um, Salem Oregon at the Oregon State Correctional Institution it was a medium security prison down there in Oregon and my job was to do do cognitive testing on the inmates who were trying to get their GEDs to see if they needed any accommodations like extra time on math or reading subtests or whatever so that's what I did. So I would go in every day and I would generate a list of inmates that I need, needed to see. They were called call-outs. And then they would, um, the school person, we, we were over in a school, which was kind of in an isolated part of the prison, um, but definitely inside the prison. And the school people would give the list to the guards and then they'd go get the inmates and bring them back. And it worked really well. I mean, they, the inmates came on time. It was prison, you know? you didn't uh, You didn't get any people who told you they weren't gonna come down. But this one day... I submitted my call-out sheet, and 15, 20 minutes went by, and uh, no one came. And I just thought that was really odd because they usually came right on time. So I went down to the main office at the school, and I said, hey, do you know why these inmates aren't down? And she said, well, why don't you call the, the, the central guard place and find out? So I called and spoke to one of the guards, and he said that they were in a lockdown situation, so no one was coming out. But he spoke to me in a very condescending tone, which was something that I hadn't experienced for a very long time. And I had this immediate emotional reaction. uh, and, And all day long, I was thinking, what is it that I'm feeling? Why am I feeling that way? And it reminded me of when I was younger in junior high school and when I was bullied by people. And I thought I was, and I felt like I was being bullied by this guard, which I hadn't experienced for 10 years. I'd been at, you know, BYU the whole time. I'd been in graduate school for five years. There was no bullying. There was no, you know, emotional uh, manipulation. But it was just so fascinating to me that an experience that I had not had in a decade, when I had just a taste of that, it immediately brought that back. And so uh, I think that's kind of what your question is getting at. You have these um Kind of triggers for lack of a better word that kind of send us back into these old patterns of um of feelings,
0: yeah, i mean that that is a real thing, like how do you manage that yeah so if it becomes
1: kind of an auto response almost it, it is an auto response, and I think that we um you can't very well manage auto responses at least immediately that that's why they're called auto responses, they just happen. Um, based on the way that our, based on what our brains are telling us at the time, the way we have to manage it is we have to go and break it down afterwards. And so what I did is I, when I went home that day, I thought, well, why, why am I feeling this way, um, or why did I feel that way? And usually, and we'll talk about this throughout the podcast. There's thoughts that are associated with the way we feel, and, um, and part of it was that I didn't feel confident where I was. I, I felt. I still felt new. I still felt like I was in training, where the truth was, I probably had, you know, five times as much education as that guard had. And he was very good at what he did, and I was very good at what I did, but we were in very different um, kind of paths, career paths. But I still felt threatened in that situation. So what we have to do is we have to look at the thoughts that are associated with that. So if my thoughts were, um, I'm, I'm not a very, you know, I'm I'm insecure, I'm, I'm not very good at what I'm doing, um, then I need to decide if those thoughts are correct. And if they're incorrect, then I need to change them and, uh, and start to think differently about that. So probably mm-hmm. the best thing to do in the moment is just kind of go back, reflect on it, look at the thoughts that are associated with that, and then look and see if cor- you can correct those thoughts. And then the next time it happens, the auto-response is going to be different because it'll be based on, on different cognitions.
0: So, almost like a retraining.
1: Absolutely. You yeah, do, the have, thoughts. thoughts are everything. powerful. Mm-hmm. And thoughts thoughts are everything. Yeah, they are thoughts come before emotions every single time. And uh, and and when we get into that auto response, the thoughts are there but they're just immediate. They they're so fast and and so it seems like we go right to the emotion, but in my experience, at least as far as I've um learned and what i've experienced in the last 20 years as a psychologist the thoughts always come first and the and the problem we usually have is we're not aware of those thoughts and so that process is just super fast we need to slow that down and kind of put a little pit stop there at the thoughts and say no wait a minute is this thought accurate is this thought true and if it is then yes proceed to the emotion if it's untrue then let's try to manage that thought change it to something more correct, and then proceed to the, the resulting emotion from that.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good. I mean, you know, our tendency as humans is to have this certainty, too, and to control the outcome. You know, but it's difficult when we live with certain people who want different outcomes. You know, that's a different trigger. <laughs>
1: right.
0: <laughs> how do you manage that? I mean, how do you let go of the outcome? You know, because we, I think we all tend to want some sort of control.
1: We do. And, and the biggest problem with control is trying to control things that we can't. And that becomes the most frustrating part. Because if you're trying to control something you can't control, you can throw all the energy in the world into it and still nothing happens. Um, it'd be like if it was raining on your wedding day and you were trying as hard as you could to make it stop raining thinking about it praying about it whatever you want to do trying as hard as you could but the but the bottom line is you can't make it stop raining and so um, i think one of the problems that we experience as human beings is that we really misunderstand where we have control and where we don't have control and we only have a certain amount of emotional energy on any given day and the more emotional energy you funnel into things you can't control it's just a drain like a literal drain. You're literally pouring that energy down the drain. It does you no good. And then you wonder why you're still frustrated. So I think that when we are talking about trying to control outcomes, what we really need to decide is, is this an outcome that I can actually control? And if it is, then let's do something about it. But when you're dealing with other human beings, like you say, if it's someone you work with or live with, and you want an outcome to happen that's associated with them, Now you've introduced two people into that situation and you only have a certain amount of control about how that's going to work out because they have control as well. And Mm -hmm. so I think we just really need to focus on what can I do about the situation? And when we let go of outcomes, I don't think we necessarily let go of outcomes. What we need to do is let go of outcomes that we don't have control over. Mm -hmm. Like you could say, I can choose to respond to this situation in this way i have control over that i don't have control of how the situation is going to result
0: mhm or even just trying to find where the common ground is yep you know like they want control i want control so where do you find the common ground where both people can feel good about it or how to how to be okay with relinquishing control when you're in a situation that you feel you need to control yeah. you know, that can cause a lot of anxiety for people. I think that's the source of a lot of anxiety.
1: I think so. I mean, one of the easiest examples to um, do that or to discuss that is in parenting. Um, because as parents, we feel like we need to control our children or we want to have certain outcomes for our children. But the more experienced you become as a parent, I think the quicker you learn that You don't have a lot of control. We we think we have control, and those first ten years of childhood with our kids, those are very deceptive because the kids kind of do everything we want, or we can easily guide them into certain things through, you know, behavioral management or something like that, promising them cookies or a trip to McDonald's or something like that, and we start to believe, hey, I'm controlling this. We're really Mm -hmm. not. I mean, we just have kids that are very obedient. As soon as they start to develop their own, you know, kind of attitudes, and you get into adolescence where they have this kind of natural and very good desire to be independent. That's going to serve them very well when they eventually leave the nest. But then we think, hey, what's going on? I'm telling my teenager to do this, and he's not doing it like he did when he was five. What happened to Mm -hmm. my power of control? Well, you never really had it. He was just more obedient when he was five, and that's when you have to start the negotiation and you have to start the collaboration and the communication, like you said. You talk with them, you say, Okay, well, let's can we find a common ground? Um and, and sometimes you can do that, sometimes you can't. Sometimes things are non negotiable when parenting, and I get that. Uh and and you have to say to the kids, look, it's gonna be this way or this is the consequence. And and that's life in general as well. That's they're gonna find that very soon once they leave the nest, because life is uh pretty unyielding when it comes to most things.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, just to kind of tag along with that, you know, we all have the right to our own life, right? But we all have agency, we have the right to our own life, but it becomes difficult to do when we live with someone who resists our agency. Yeah. You know, I mean, how do you peacefully navigate that without contention? Because that always creates contention, but then you don't yeah. want to be a doormat either.
1: Exactly. Right. I mean, and those, those are two extremes, right? On the one hand, you have the doormat, which is, I'll just let anything happen. It reminds me of um, one of President Nelson's recent talks in General Conference. Uh, I think in the most recent General Conference, he's talking about being a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. And, but he made a very uh, important statement. He said, He says, I'm not talking about peace at all costs. And then he kind of explained that a little bit. But I think what he was saying is, look, we're not just here to roll over. Um, you know, and let everyone have what they want. And that's how we become peacemakers. He said that there has to be a negotiation. So I think when when your agency is in conflict with someone else's agency, which it often will be, I think the very first thing you need to do is you need to look at your situation first and decide, am I acting within the bounds of my agency? The things that I want to be accomplished, are they within my sphere of control? Or those spilling over into other spheres of control, you could look at it like a like a Venn diagram. So if, you know, like circles that are overlapping, and you have to look and see how much is my circle of control overlapping with the other person's circle of control. And in this particular situation, the older our kids get, the the more um, differentiated we become from other people. Those circles move further apart. And um, and so I think as you decide how much should I be controlling, then I can help I think that helps with kind of that peaceful navigation because then you're not going to try to control things that you can't control. And then you respect the other person's agency. If they say, Mom, I'm not going to do that. I'm 17 years old and it's unreasonable for me to do that, then you have to step back and say, is that true? Or in mm-hmm. a husband-wife situation, you know, this is something I'm not willing to do. Is that something that that the other spouse is um is entitled to because of the relationship well probably not so just communication is going to be the name of the game and all this stuff communication and humility and in as much as both parties are doing that then you'll have a successful resolution if if one resists then it becomes a little tougher
0: yeah, that's the thing. What do you do when your concerns or frustrations are ignored by the partner? Yeah, I and mean, that happens right. a lot in relationships. It's like, oh, you're just overreacting. It's fine. Oh, you'll be no. fine. Don't worry about it. It's dismissive. Right. And then it really flares up in the relationship. And if it happens too much, it can cause some real damage to the relationship. How do yeah. you how do you navigate that? That's so tricky.
1: I think you have to be, so communication, the onus of healthy communication is always on us. It's not on the other person. We can't say, well, they should know what I'm thinking, or that we've we've been married for 30 years, so they should know what I feel about this. I don't like that at all, because that's, even if maybe they should know, like that, that is a long time to be married, but um, like, like my wife and I, we've been married 31 years, and guaranteed that's a long time for us to learn a lot about each other, but that does not make my wife responsible for something that I'm feeling or communication that I need to um, execute uh, because I'm scared or tired or grumpy or whatever it is. So I need to make sure, like like if my partner is being dismissive, then I need to make sure they understand the way I'm feeling and say, hey, so you just said, oh, you'll get over it, it's no big deal. Say, hey, wait, hold on, back up just a minute. This isn't something I'm just going to get over. This is something very serious, and I really want to talk with you about it. I think most times in reasonably healthy relationships, if you do that, then your partner's going to respond and say, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, let, let's talk about this. Let's try to figure that out. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so it might take a couple times. You, know, you might have to be insistent and continue to make sure that your partner clearly understands where you're coming from. Now, if they clearly understand where you're coming from and they just don't care, and they just continue to ignore, you know, your concerns, that's a whole different issue altogether. And then you have to kind of talk about the status of relationship. Is this something that um, is, you know, sustainable over a signif- over an extended period of time? You know, if, if other things need to be considered, if mm-hmm. I, I think most misunderstandings come just because of poor communication, um, and, and it's not so much that you've got someone who's just really that emotionally abusive um, and, and just has no interest in, in coming to any sort of compromise, although those situations do happen, and then those require more aggressive solutions.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, because some people, they don't feel as heard when they're together verbally. It's easier for a spouse to be dismissive, but sometimes if they text them or write them, yeah. it seems to have more impact
1: absolutely and i and com- i think you should explore all kinds of communication if one doesn't seem to work then try another one um I'll, I'll lay the blame on men to a certain extent for this because generally speaking men tend to be worse communicators than women um and so if, if you're trying to commu- if you're trying to you know successfully communicate with your partner if he's a man then maybe you do need to talk about that say hey what what's the best way if i need to tell tell you something that's kind of sensitive that you're not going to like, what's the best way for me to tell you this? Do You want me to write you a letter and leave it, you know, put it in your backpack so that you don't see it till later. Do you want, do you want me to tell you, do you want to text you something and then give you two hours before we talk about it, you know, to give you time to process it, whatever it is, each, each um, relationship can come to their own conclusions about what style of communication works best for them. And the possibilities are endless. It's just whatever mm-hmm. you want to do for yourself. But that requires communication as well. You have to hash that out. And, and sometimes that's tough because, you know, we, we have been hurt or we feel vulnerable or our relationships lack emotional intimacy. And so it's difficult to do those things. But if you're going to have a strong, healthy, communicative relationship, you have to do the difficult work to get there. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make is to understand how people want to communicate. Because some people like I know for me, when like someone's going on too much verbally, I check out like it overwhelms me like too much language and verbal. I'm like, "Ugh, I can't, you know, but if it's like something short and brief that I can process, then I'm I'm better. You know, I can it's better for me.
1: (laughs) Well, and, and that's perfect. And so if you are not communicating that to people that you are trying to build a relationship with then that's on you right and so if they come to you with a you know 40 minute explanation of something and you're like oh my gosh this is the worst thing i hate this you need to make but if you haven't explained to them that you like short concise when it comes to certain topics then that's on you and so Mm -hmm. that's that that's the opportunity for you to say hey you know what on these topics i would love it if you could distill what you're going to say down to less than 2 minutes and we can go from there <laughs> you know or whatever it is Yeah, right? give me 2 minutes i can't <laughs> beyond that and i'll get i'll get you a stop i can get me a stopwatch for my birthday and i can sit there and look at it it'd be awesome
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny yeah or are you ready for the 10 page letter that i'm going to write you yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the diatribe but so we have to so- not
1: take well, we have to not take that personally either, right? If someone says if we're the a 10-page writing kind of person and someone says I want the 2-minute synopsis, then that's the compromise we have to make. And we say, "Okay, mm-hmm. with you I'll give 2 minutes, but with my other friend, she's okay with the 10 pages." And so I'll do that with her. And in as much as we take all that stuff personally, that just damages the relationship as well. We have to be humble enough to say, "Okay, that's fine." That's nothing, there's nothing wrong about it. It's just preference and we can work with that.
0: Yeah. And respect how people communicate. Yeah. Because if we really can honor that,
1: we're going to have a better outcome. 100%. It it has to start. Well, yeah. I and mean, we talked about how it starts with communication, but I guess even before that, it starts with respect and being willing to try to understand the other person. And like I said, I think most relationships, most committed relationships have respect it's just getting past those kind of roadblocks of, like I said, the emotional intimacy or um, feeling you know, hurt and stuff like that. We, I, I swear, every single one of us, to a certain extent, I mean, I see these 50-year-olds, and I'm like, man, they behave like they're 14 years old. We're all stuck in adolescence. And I'm thinking, man, can we just get through that? Can we get to kind of emotional adulthood much easier said than done? But a lot of the problems that I see in relationships are where I see two grown people kind of behaving like they're still 13 or 14 years old emotionally. Mm -hmm. And we can get past that. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That moves me into my next thought about this. So like if our confidence has been affected in our youth, we can create this habit of building walls for emotional protection, right? To the point where we can't even allow ourselves to feel the love and acceptance of others um so how can you break that down i mean i think a lot of people build those emotional walls
1: yeah absolutely i've taught about this before in um at uh, presentations i've done for conferences and stuff and i usually have a slide associated with this that shows a person in a full suit of armor of armor and i'm like do you ever go into your relationships like this you know completely (laughs) protected Um, and and then you're like hey let's uh let's get emotionally intimate you know i mean how are you supposed to you both show up completely in these suits of armor and it reminds me of um years ago i learned about the the left-handed handshake it was eventually adopted by the boy scouts of america but it um as i recall it had to do with some african tribe and where most of the warriors in the tribe were right-handed And so they would hold their weapon with their right hand and they would hold their shield or their other protective device in their left hand. And so if they were going to shake hands with their right hand, all they had to do was put their weapon down, but they could continue to hold their shield. They could continue to be defended. But if they were going to shake hands with the left hand, they had to take the shield off in order to do that. And it was a sign of ultimate trust because they were saying, I'm okay with you that I'm willing to put my, my protection down. Now, when we're in relationships, most of us have gone through something mildly traumatic to, you know, extensively traumatic in our lives, and we build those walls. Some people are fortresses, some people are just channeling fences, but I I can't think of any person who's just a complete, you know, open book when it comes to protecting themselves emotionally. So what we need to do is when we get into those relationships, we have to be willing to make the first move. So if we both show up in our suits of armor, I have to be the one that raises my visor and then the other person raises their visor, and then I have to put my sword down, the other person puts their sword down. And eventually, we go through this you know, process step by step, and now pretty soon we're just standing there in our street clothes um, unprotected, but more emotionally connected. So we just have to start by being willing to uh, be vulnerable, even just a little bit, it can be a stepwise process, you don't have to go from full armor to street clothes you know, in, in 30 seconds but um if you're waiting for the other person to make the first move that's not going to happen we have to be the ones that start that and so whatever that is if that's increasing communication or if that's going to someone and saying um i'm going to tell you something about myself that is important for our relationship but that is but that's been very hard for me to tell and you and you tell that you can choose the people that you want to tell that to you you know you vet those relationships and if it seems like something where you feel like you can trust the other person you can proceed with that if it's someone that you don't think you can trust then absolutely keep your guard up that's why we have walls because they're important at times Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i mean it's just that the challenge comes and i've seen this with some people that i know where they have this habit of building up these emotional walls for protection and they can't break it down even with someone they should be able to trust they just can't they can't break the wall down, like the well, and fear I think it, factor.
1: Right? Yeah, they're just they're just scared, and um, and until they take the risk of, of of taking one brick out of that wall, then that wall is going to stay up forever. But at some point, they have to take that risk. And I think part of the problem is they they think very um, in, in very polarized terms, and they think my options are either full double layered brick wall or no wall at all. And those aren't the only two options. You know, you can go from full double layer brick wall to single layer brick wall, or you can go from that to vinyl fencing, and you can go from that to chain link, and you can go from that to a barbed wire or whatever you want. You can still have those protections, you know, anything in between. And I think when they, but because they think in such a polarized manner, they think, oh, this is, my, these are my only two options, and I don't want to go to no wall, so I have to stay with full wall. I think if we can think more flexibly about that and say, okay, with this person, I will build a vinyl fence, and that's how I'll protect myself. You know, still some privacy, but you could hop over it if you need to. Um, with this person, I'm keeping up the full brick wall because I don't trust that person at all, and the last thing I want to do is let my guard down. And it's different for different people, for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, how do you rebuild your confidence and allow... You know ourselves to see the good within us because some people have been in difficult situations and crushing relationships, divorced, whatever it might be, and their confidence is just crushed, yeah, how do they get kind of back to a point where they really feel and can see the good in themselves?
1: yeah, so that goes back to this idea of thoughts and how our thoughts always precede our emotions, and you can substitute the word thought" for the word belief it's it's exactly the same how it works. Um, there's this amazing talk uh, it's either 2018 or 2019 BYU devotional Elder Lawrence Corbridge it's called Stand Forever it instantly became one of my favorite um, LDS talks ever and Elder Corbridge talks about how um, sometimes we say that there is a a distance between our actions and our beliefs that we don't always behave in accordance with um with what we believe, but he pushes back against that. And it really resonated with me. And he said, the challenge is not so much um, narrowing the the gap between our actions and our beliefs. The challenge is narrowing the gap between our beliefs and the truth. That what happens is we believe untrue things about ourselves or untrue things about other people. And that creates discord um, and lack of harmony. So when someone has been through a traumatic experience and they don't, think very highly of themselves, they're going to have a lot of thoughts and beliefs about themselves. I'm no good. I'm, I'm worthless. I'm, uh, I'm bad at relationships, all those sorts of things. Chances are, if I had that person write down the list of all those beliefs, guaranteed that none of those beliefs would be 100% true. And in fact, some of them would be 100% false. Yet that's the core that they're using to fuel their emotional experience. And so if we're trying to rebuild confidence, we have to take a serious look at some of those core beliefs about ourselves and determine if they're true or not. And, and one of the things I love about um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have truth that we can use as kind of a benchmark. And so if I say, I'm no good and I'm worthless, well, I already have an immediate counter to that in how my Heavenly Father thinks about me, who thinks I'm amazing and who thinks I'm of such incredible value that he was willing to send his only begotten son to die for me. And so you can see the inconsistency between those two beliefs, and I have to decide which one is correct. Well, obviously, what Heavenly Father thinks about me is correct 100% all the time, and so I need to start to change my belief about myself to better align with his belief about me. And and, And as we engage in that process, then the emotions follow and we tend to have more confidence. So it really is a process of just getting at those core beliefs, analyzing them for accuracy, and then determining what we can do to change them to make them more consistent with what is actually true.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true, I like that too, because when we think about our thoughts, getting back to our thoughts, they start becoming a reality for us if we don't check them for accuracy.
1: Yes, Uh, absolutely. well, you, there's what people call the a reality distortion field. And it's this idea um, that people get so engrossed in their own beliefs about themselves that they be almost become detached from reality. And, and they can't <laughs> even, um, uh, this happens with narcissism, which you don't see a ton of, but it's out there. And these people believe that they can never do anything wrong, that nothing is ever their fault. And they have such ingrained beliefs about that that if someone were to say, you did this wrong, they'd go, of course I didn't. I have never made a mistake in my entire life. And they truly believe that. And that's insane, right? right? I mean, that's, that's right. ridiculous. No one is that, well, Jesus Christ, the only person who's ever lived like that, right? But everyone else has blown it to a certain degree. And then you can go to the opposite um, end of that, the opposite of narcissism, where you just have complete self-loathing, where someone says, I have never done anything good in my life. I'm to blame for everything that's fundamentally untrue as well. we have mm-hmm. to come to some sort of middle ground where it's accurate. but yeah, your what you believe about yourself is going to color the way it's going to color your your personality, it's going to color your life. so uh, getting attuned to those beliefs and like you said checking them for accuracy is really critical both to relationships and to self-esteem, um really anything.
0: mhm so I want to switch gears here and just talk about, like, how can parents transition from a relationship of parenthood to a relationship of friendship with their adult children? Yeah. Because that can be really difficult.
1: It is. It's tricky. Um, and, it, and it kind of catches us by surprise. I was just looking um, on Facebook, and you know how memories come, pop up. And one of the memories that popped up was in 2011 when our oldest was graduating from high school. And um, so that was 12 years ago, and now he's a father of two, and married, and graduated from college, and um, working for a bank, and all that stuff. Anyway, I just I just remember thinking, man, that went fast. You know, there's <laughs> 12 years went by really fast, and and all of the parenting that we did in the meantime. Now we're empty nesters; all of our kids are are moved out. I think that negotiating that new relationship with your children is is important and you have to start seeing it differently if you're still viewing your child the same way that you did when they were five then that's gonna it's not gonna be very helpful in that relationship you have to start viewing them as independent adults you have to view it like like you were at the time i look back at myself when i was you know in my early 30s and man i i, I really didn't know anything but i thought i did but i was doing my best um we have to have trust in our adult children as well if if you're still trying to control outcomes with them that's going to be a problem Um, and, and you have to be willing to accept that there are going to be negative outcomes that they're going to make some bum decisions and that they're going to suffer because of that and it's going to be like the way you lived your life as well when you made bum decisions and suffered because of it but you learned and you grew because of that you're a better person now because of some of those poor decisions And your children are going to do the same thing as well. So if we can pull out of the kind of, um, it's my responsibility to make sure they have no distress to, I'm here as a consultant to offer advice when requested and to help them through that, I think that's helpful. It really is just a mind game on the part of the parent. You have to change the way you think about that relationship.
0: Mm -hmm. And bite your tongue. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes. You you do have to bite your tongue. The best advice I ever got was from my um, my late mother in law, and uh, and she said that she would she would never offer opinion unless it was asked regarding like relationships. Um, and she actually told my wife. She said, "I don't want to hear about the fights that you're having with your husband because that's going to color my feelings about him." She said, "I." Mm-hmm. She said, "You work that out with him." Don't come Mm -hmm. to me about that. And I thought, wow, that was it was really sage advice.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true, because you don't want it to color your opinion and you don't want it to kind of create drama within the family when usually it's something they can just resolve
1: and they should just resolve. And if they really need to talk to someone, then they could talk with a friend or someone or a counselor or a church leader or whatever, you know, Uh, all, all kinds of options for that.
0: Yeah, that's I think that's really good advice, because I think sometimes a lot of these kids, they just keep coming back to their parents with all their issues and and stresses. It stresses the parents out, it stresses the family out. It's, and then it ends up and sometimes it's kind of funny. We had this gospel doctrine teacher and he was talking about that. And he was saying how like one of his kids calls and I'm so mad at my husband, this and that. And then, like, he's up all night worried about it, stressing about it. And then they had totally resolved it that night, but they hadn't told him. And then he's all stressed out about it, like, for yeah. the next three days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? And then it just creates kind of issues, you know? Yeah. So it's yeah. good to kind of keep it within the relationship. That's good advice. So, so one thing I think is really important. I think a lot of people have these automatic negative thoughts. And then it creates kind of these negative emotions and feelings and negative outcomes. And I think we all have a tendency in some capacity to ruminate over things. How do you get out of those negative thought patterns and cycles? How do you stop Um, that?
1: So when, um, as we were discussing this before, uh, it reminded me of one of my favorite Disney movies called Meet the Robinsons. Do do you know that movie? Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, where the the boy who's trying to be adopted, and there's the time travel and stuff. Well, anyway, there's um his the boy um Lewis, he, when he's in the foster home or I guess it's the orphanage, he is uh, roommates with Mike Yagubian, who they call Goob, and um and Goob ends up growing up to become the bowler hat guy, who is just causing chaos. And so there's this great. Uh, scene where the bowler hat guy has traveled back in time to talk to his younger self and it's just after um uh little goobs uh little league team has lost the game lost the big championship game and he's just sitting there on his bed depressed and so his older self is talking to him the older self i've got the quote here he says well the game didn't go so well huh and his younger self says no i fell asleep in the ninth inning and i missed the winning catch then i got beat up Afterward, Coach told, took me aside. He told me to let it go. I don't know. He's probably right. So, so Goob's initial reaction is, I'm just going to let this go. And his adult self says, no. Everyone will tell you to let it go and move on, but don't. Instead, let it fester and boil inside of you. Take these feelings and lock them away. Let them fuel your actions. Let hate be your ally. And then you will be capable of wonderful, hor- wonderful horrid things. Heed my words, Goob. Don't let it go terrible advice, right? He's <laughs> telling them to let this let these angry feelings fester. That was the first thing I thought about when we talked about this was you, you have to let those feelings go and one of the things um, when I was studying about anxiety management and about meditation in particular, um, they said when, when meditating, one of the things that people do is sometimes they will picture themselves sitting by a river and things are floating by in the river. and But the things that are floating by are kind of their thoughts and their emotions and they just let them flow by. So here comes anger and and anger is coming and it's gonna be present in my life for just a minute, you know, while it's floating in the river, but at some point it's gonna float downstream and it's not gonna be with me anymore. And then maybe here comes a little bit of happiness and, and the happiness is gonna be with me for a minute and uh, and then maybe it goes by as well. There's so much power in just in experiencing the emotion, but then kind of letting it have its moment and then letting it go. I've often described it as um, like lighting a match. So if you light a match and let it burn, it will burn for about maybe 60 seconds, and then it's going to burn itself out. And, and, And a lot of emotions are like that. Now, if you take that match and you hold it to some kindling, And you get a little fire going, and then you put some more kindling on that, and then you put some small sticks on that, and then you put some big sticks on that, you put some logs on that, and throw a few tires on there, man, you can have a fire that'll burn forever. But that that requires action on your part. And I think a lot of times with negative emotions, they're kind of like a match, and maybe sometimes they're like a thick match that'll burn for a while, but if we just let them go, they're going to burn out. We have to fuel them in order for them to keep going. And so when we've got kind of chronic negative emotions, I think we need to take a very close look at ourselves and say, am I doing anything? Am I stoking this fire on a daily basis? Because if I am, then I'm contributing to the problem. Then this isn't just some emotion run wild. This is something that I'm doing. That's creating an ongoing negative experience for me instead of just letting it burn out. So, And that requires some discipline, but you have to get kind of introspective and say, "Is what am I doing to contribute to this? And if there is something I'm doing, then what can I do to stop that? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, just not feeding it. Yes. You know, just almost passive, like, okay, I'm acknowledging it, right? I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling overwhelmed, stressed, whatever it is. And then maybe analyzing why am I feeling overwhelmed and stressed? And then acknowledging it kind of helps it to pass. Because if you kind of ignore it and say, oh, I'm not going to let myself feel this. I'm, I'm just right. fine. I'm going to change into a different mindset. That also isn't that helpful either because you're not facing it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Acknowledging it is very important, but just not fueling it. And and as you were describing that, you described it perfectly. But I can envision a listener saying, well, that that just sounds so easy, but it's really hard to do. And I would like to reinforce that it is very hard to do. What Mary Alice, what you just said is exactly what we should do, but it's extremely difficult to implement. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of failed attempts, but eventually you'll get better at it. And so mm-hmm. don't don't be discouraged if you're trying to employ what was just recommended and, then you, and it doesn't work the first time. Well, don't be discouraged. Try again another time and again and again and again. And just like anything in life, you're going to get better at it the more that you do it. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Another area I wanted to talk about too is rejection. You know, what are some healthy ways to cope with rejection? A lot of people like in the workplace and relationships, you know, these young kids that are listening to the podcast right now, we have a lot of 20, 20 year old types that, you know, they're breaking up, they're in relationships, they're facing rejection or they don't do well on a test and you know, there's so many forms of rejection and it can be so disabling for a lot of people. How did they, what are some healthy ways to cope with that?
1: So again, we're going to get back to thoughts and beliefs about ourselves because usually one of the reasons that rejection cuts so hard is that it tends to reinforce negative beliefs that we already have about ourselves. Um, and, and I'm trying to think of of an example um, like right now, I'm I'm wearing a I'm wearing a blue shirt, and if someone came to me and said your shirt is red, I would go well, no, it's not, and I would just think they're crazy or you know something's wrong with their rods and cones or something like that, and and I wouldn't think twice about it because my shirt is clearly clearly blue. Now if someone came to me and said um, you are a uh, you know you're you're a poor communicator, then I might think hmm. Well, is part of that true? Am I a poor communicator? Do I have some challenges in my life that, that make it difficult for me to communicate in certain situations? In as much as I believe what they're saying is true, then I start to think more deeply about it and it can start to get into my emotions as well. The, the clear solution to coping with rejection is to build self confidence. Because the more self confident you are, then when you get rejected in one way, instead of saying, I'm a loser, I'm no good. She doesn't love me. He doesn't like me, whatever it is. We say, you know what? Yeah, that that's sad that that relationship ended, but I'm a good person. And that just didn't work out this time. And I'm going to find someone better. And I know it sounds kind of trite, but self-confident people, that's the way they think. And so healthy ways to cope with rejection, it's, it's more a long game than it is a short game, um, because you really have to take a look at your self-confidence. And if you have very poor self-confidence, rejection is going to cut you deep every single time. And, and, yeah. and there's nothing really you can do about that because at least in the moment, you can't say, well, what's some what's a band-aid I can put on this right now? And I, I don't know that there is. At some point, we have to correct that image we have of ourselves. And, and the, the healthier that gets, the more accurate, the closer it gets to the way Heavenly Father and our Savior feel about us then the better we are able to deal with rejection. So I would suggest to people who are struggling with coping with rejection, don't look for Band-Aids. Let's talk major surgery. Let's talk how am I going to fix the way I feel about myself, and then naturally the reaction to rejection is going to um, become more healthy.
0: Mm -hmm. And controlling those thoughts, which changes the outcome. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So my last question that I have is, you know, we can all get into ruts and slumps in our life. Like, what are some strategies to get out of feeling stuck? I think yeah. a lot of people get in that headspace sometimes where they just feel stuck and they don't know how to reroute.
1: So a lot of this has to do with the way our brains are designed and our brains are, um, the best way they describe it is it's called um, a plasticity. It's called neuroplasticity. And it's kind of like, um, like almost like wax that when you heat it up, you can kind of change the shape of it. But then when it cools, it becomes, you know, hardened. But then you could heat it up again and change the shape if you wanted to, like if you had some sort of, you know, wax mold or something. I remember when we were little, we used to go to Hogel Zoo in Salt Lake, and you could get these little wax molds of animals from this machine. And when the wax mold would come out, it was hot. And you had to be careful that you didn't, like, you know, put your finger in it or something, because that could leave a permanent divot in it. You had to just kind of wait there and sit and wait for it to cool. Our brains are like that. And the more you do something, the more you think something, the more your brain creates different pathways that facilitate those thoughts. Uh, and so, and that's where ruts and slumps, and I think it almost is, it could even be like literal ruts in your brain. Uh, there's these neural pathways that just become extremely um, facilitative in thinking certain things. You can think about it if, if someone is uh, plays piano uh, we had a good friend when we lived in Washington, and he was just fantastic at piano. Uh, amazing, uh, his—I mean—he could sit down and just play almost anything, sight read almost anything, very, very well. But he had put in probably you know tens of thousands of hours of practice into that. So his brain, the piano parts of his brain, were highly refined. The piano parts of my brain are very unrefined. You know, I—I I can barely play. But if I practiced over and over and over again, I could change that part of my brain and I could become excellent at it. So the way we get out of those ruts and slumps is to, again, take a look at the, at the thoughts that are associated with those ruts and slumps and then start to change those. And it's going to take some time. Uh, if you, um, like anxiety, for example, if your natural reaction is to be anxious and then you decide tomorrow that you're not going to be anxious, And so you send that thought to your brain, hey, we're not going to be anxious about that. Your brain's going to say, yeah, right. We've spent 20 years being anxious. We're not going to change just like that. Go fish. But if you tell yourself the same thing over and over and over again, I'm not going to be anxious in this situation, or I'm going to go experience this situation and see how it feels, and we do that over and over and over again, then our brain starts to adapt to that. If you have thoughts that I'm I'm ugly, I'm no good and you change those thoughts to, I'm decent looking and I'm good at a lot of things, and you tell yourself those things over and over and over again, eventually your brain is going to change, literally change, and develop pathways that say, I'm a reasonably good looking person. And then that's gonna be your natural thought when you look in the mirror, as opposed to the thoughts we have before. So it really has to do with kind of understanding how the brain works, and that the brain's not gonna just give in you know, on day one when you try to do something, but it will give in on day 500 and day 1,000. It will eventually give in. The brain is not biased against us. It's just, it's only going to invest energy in changing when it realizes that there's some legs behind it and that we're, you know, we're we're really invested in something. And the way we have shown the investment is that we do it over and over and over again. One positive affirmation amid, amidst 99 negative affirmations on a daily basis, you can. I can already tell you which way your brain's going to go with that, and where it's going to invest its energy in developing neural pathways. It's going to go with the ninety-nine. But if you correct that balance, and now you're telling you you tell yourself ten positive things about yourself every day, or twenty positive things, um, your brain's going to react to that. Getting in tune with our thoughts is important because I think people would be surprised, especially people who struggle with. Kind of chronic negative emotions they would be surprised just how many negative thoughts they have about themselves and about situations every single day and i would say it's in the realm of thousands and tens of thousands very small things just over and over and over again and eventually that's going to create large outcomes so we have to kind of stop the flow of that start to insert different thoughts and the good news is if you eventually correct that balance so that there's 99 good thoughts every day and one thought, one bad thought every day, you can almost get to the point where it's hard for you to be depressed. It's hard for you to be anxious because your brain has literally rewired itself to think differently, and those negative emotions are just hard to get to. It seems like a dream. It's entirely possible. It just takes a lot of effort and a lot of consistency, like years of consistency.
0: So almost like a retraining.
1: Just, just to be patient with yourself. Uh, these, like I said, these things take time. And if you, um, if, you, if you try for one or two days and you don't feel like you're making any progress, yeah, that's exactly how it's going to be. You're not going to make a lot of progress in one to two days. But if you try consistently over months and years, you are going to see results. So be consistent. Be patient. Give yourself a break. It's okay to feel the way you're feeling right now. That's um, you can be different. It just takes time, and be and be consistent, and uh, and give yourself some uh, some space to make that growth.
0: Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. I invite you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Instagram, follow us at Podcast What Now. For inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present episodes. We never say goodbye, we say what now. This has been a What Now podcast production.